Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Guys, it is great Yo. to see your faces. Sarah is drinking out of a mug that says, Not today, Satan. Yeah, not today, uh, Satan. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow, but not today. Beautifully calligraphied. So I think. Yes. Maybe tomorrow. Am I a middle aged white woman in suburbia or aren't I? David's all. Everything's got to be calligraphy. I thought we were sort of past calligraphy. Now it's um those little boards, like the felt boards, right? Hmm. Well, ha- what's How do you going know this, on? Dave? What's going okay. on? I just I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a middle-aged, He's a middle-aged man. white woman in, in suburbia. In suburbia, yeah. Well. <laughs> Say no more. Um, RJ, what's happening with you? I'm good. Uh, yeah, life life is life is good. I just got back from um, an event where uh, two-time Masters champion Bernard Longer was sharing his faith with a room full of about 300 people, and he's uh, like a German golfer in his 60s. I had no idea he was a Christian, but it was good and powerful. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, that was kind of interesting and exciting. And things are things are good here in West Palm Beach. Good. I was actually, yeah. yesterday, my older brother called me. He said, I got just catching up on the podcast, and I just can't believe how good RJ sounds. <laughs> I thought I sounded I was like, a I- little... Unhinged. I was like, I know. He's... I thought I said a little unhinged last week. So. <laughs> no, that's what you sound like when you're happy, RJ. That's happy, okay. RJ. Okay, that's good to know. Good that's, to that's, know. A happy Dutchman <laughs> is a very happy man indeed. That's true. It's unhinged. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, things with you, Sarah. Sarah Condon. Reverend. A reverend. Irreverent. 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 Uh... You know that is a Twitter handle that I do not want to look at. Um, <laughs> uh, things are good. I mean, we're having like our really nice five cold days in Houston that we get every year. Yes, yes mm-hmm. winter. The one week of winter. It's been really nice so far. The power grid's held up. Um, and my banana tree hasn't died. So, you know, things are good. I mean, we're we're moving right along. I'm so... I don't know if I said this last week, but like definitely post-Christmas feel so much better. I mean, you know, Christmas was just so brutal that the more into the new year we are, like, the more I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I, I just feel more more and more like myself, which is such a huge thing because a year ago at this time, I was on my couch unable to get off all day long. So, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I just feel really lucky to be here and um, and have my family be with me. I don't know. Like really simple things make me happy. So, so good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's, it is, it is. Well, I'm happy for a different reason. Um, in a, a less a sort of simple reason. I, I, we had just got back from Tulsa. We were out in Tulsa doing a mockingbird event out at sort of an in-person event out there. And, um, this is what made me happy. The, the event itself went great. It was it was really fun. It was co-sponsored by uh, Christ Episcopal Church and I think Christ Presbyterian Church out in um, 
out awesome. there, and it just came Look together. At that, partnerships. Chad Bird gave an amazing talk, and and Kara Slade gave an unbelievably good talk. I got off the plane, and they took me straight to Church Studio, which is Leon Russell's studio, which was a converted church. And if people know Leon Russell, he was he had his hand in like all sorts of 70s rock and roll. He was the he was the guy who was the band leader on the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour who wore a baseball shirt that simply said Holy Trinity on it. And Whoa. um yeah, it was the sort of place where Tom Petty signed his first contract and all this stuff and uh little you know Tulsa's got a lot a lot going on and um these I just felt very loved. I I I didn't really know what was happening. I sort of was like focusing on other things about the conference. And then they took us to uh, Kane's Ballroom, and which is another music venue. So for a guy like me, it, it, it felt like Christmas. So um, Oh, that's so cool. And then, then to go awesome. after that and have all these wonderful people show up in person, as well as, you know, stream tube. And anyway, I'm, I'm very grateful for that because the conferences, if people who know me, I get stressed out about them. I like him sort of... By the time they happen, I'm just like, let's get it over with, and then I'll always enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, David Conference is just like you coming up to me and being like, your talk was great. How do you think it's going? Your talk was great. How do you think it's going? Just over and over again. And then I see you say that to everyone else. And I'm like, okay, so I guess all the talks were great. But also, it's going fine, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta say that's basically my marriage is me just being to my wife Jamie like how am I doing how am I doing affirm me how's this going please tell me so even when I'm like honey you look you so upset? beautiful today she's upset? like RJ yeah do you need me to affirm you right now RJ is that why you're complimenting me I'm like yes it is so right. well I can well. compliment you RJ on your wordle skills we're gonna talk oh. about wordle I it was it, podcast listeners might find it funny I I I asked my co-host to do Wordle if they had not done Wordle before. If you don't know what Wordle is, Wordle is a newish word game that is web-based, non-monetized, and impossible to binge because there's only one puzzle a day. It's simple, but also feels refreshing and unique. There's a social element. You can share your results without giving away the answer. But it is perhaps the least offensive, non-problematic viral phenomenon to achieve escape velocity in some time. That inoffensiveness has a lot to do with why a mass of people delight in the game. This is I'm reading from Charlie Wartzel's uh, newsletter from The Atlantic called How to Create Wordle Backlash. He says, the stakes are exceedingly low. It can make you feel momentarily clever, but not super smart. It can be frustrating, but it's also hard to take extremely seriously. But this is the internet, and that means that without much searching, you can find a group who take Wordle far too seriously. You have people making Wordle their entire personality, and that becomes annoying enough to another person that they make disliking Wordle their entire personality. Those people are naturally loud and provocative online, and thanks to social platforms that reward engagement, their voices are amplified. And so the most provocative and annoyed and the most enthusiastic and supportive Wordle crews find each other seamlessly and proceed to piss each other off. <laughs> <laughs> this might sound a bit dramatic for a word game, and it is. That's the whole point. He says that Wordle's public reception fascinates and unnerves me because it's an example of how the internet flattens things. We are conditioned to project strong feelings about things we don't feel all that strongly about. At the same time, we're conditioned to interpret other responses to low-stakes content as high-stakes, perhaps even threatening. 
we end up arguing about things we don't feel strongly about because we can't remember that the other side of the argument is subject to many of the same forces. It's this dynamic that gives me pause because the attentional spotlight rarely lands on things as inoffensive and low stakes as a five-letter word game. Nothing should be easier to ignore than Wordle and its fans, just as nothing should be easier than enjoying a good game with like-minded people. And yet here we are. It's worth asking, have we built an internet where enjoying an innocent thing with a large community is, quite simply, impossible? So I know people have a lot of feelings <laughs> about Aziz Ansari, oh, but I have not oh, ever turn. hidden that I really enjoy Aziz Ansari's comedy. I think he's very gifted. His show, yes. uh, help <laughs> me the name of it. Master was fabulous. Um, okay. <laughs> and he has, he ha- yeah. I mean, like Parks and Rec is like a whole. I can yes. it's so good. So, but he has a new. It just went up last night because I almost texted you guys like at ten thirty and was like, oh my gosh, stop what you're doing. You have to watch it. It's like literally thirty. It's a thirty minute set. Yeah, it's not long, and I love stand up comedy and it is so insightful when it comes to sort of arguing in the internet and how everything becomes like a fight and also like he does this whole bit about i think it's timothy chalamet like throwing a boba tea at an asian man in new york and like i don't even know if it actually happened but how like we become obsessed with this thing that like is not really relevant to us or our lives in some ways for like two week increments, right? Like it's all we can talk about. It's all we want to debate. And, you know, there's like other things happening in the world. Sure. And we can always make the argument. Like there's like other news we should be paying attention to, but also like our actual lives are happening Mm -hmm. and we're fighting about things that aren't relevant to us. And it's just, and I say this as someone who completely, I hate to sound like I feel like I'm a better person than I used to be. So I just want to apologize to everyone who listens to me talk post the deaths of my parents. But I might be a little bit of a better person, unfortunately. So I apologize to everyone who really liked me when I was fired up about everything because I'm not as good at that as I used to be. Mm. But I used to really get in on those kinds of like stupid, like, I'm going to take a stand, you know, you're all wasting your time kind of thing. And I'm, what I choose is more valuable. And now I just, it's just like heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like to watch this much division happen, everything's I've seen the wordle stuff go up. And, um, I just, I mean, I also would love if we could give the real reasons why we either really want to do it or we really don't. (laughs) You know, because like I saw it and please don't tell me community. I don't want to hear that nonsense Um, because I saw it and I was like immediately I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough to do this. That was the first thought I had, you know, and so but what happens, right, is like that's the first thought we have. But then we just like like the monster within just like pushes that thought down and is like, that can't be it. It's because these people have more time on their hands. That's what I'm going to say about these people who play Wordle. So anyway, it's just well, RJ, you, I, you, I got, you initially said you didn't want to play Wordle when I sent it to you. And then about no, I got defensive five I got minutes later. You're like, uh, I got defensive and scared. And I'm like, I don't need to download another game and figure this out. And I've got bigger fish to fry. And it's like late at night. And and then you said it literally takes five seconds. And I was like, OK, I'm in. Yeah. And then I was then like, was, these guys are Ivy League. They're going to be so good at it and understand it. 
It well, it took me a sec, uh, and then I got it, and I felt very self justified, mm. and was uh, you know, and and good about myself, and was tempted to like you know post to the internet, but I just sent it to you. I just bragged to to the two of you. Sort of, mm. I kept it. I kept it under wraps. Um, but yeah, it was fun, and I do like something. I don't, I'm not sure you said you can't binge it. It's once a day. I think there's something. There's actually something really nice about that. You're not gonna. I mean. You know, someone has already invented a wordle that you can binge. I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, but the but the the original you can't, which is which is a nice thing. It's just a a nice little few minute distraction. You know, first thing in the morning or last thing at night or whenever you need a just a fun thing. Mm. The article was interesting. Um, well, obviously, because number one. Everything on Earth, especially anything remotely enjoyable or popular, automatically becomes a, uh, a means by which people justify their existence, either by loving it or hating it. You know, everything is about our need to justify our existence um, or to, 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 you know, crap on other people's needs to justify their existence, thereby justifying your own existence. Um, but the whole emotion thing is really interesting, right? And we, talk, we talked about this over the past few weeks. Why is it that it just feels so good to be obsessed with something, maybe for the good, but it's even more delicious to be obsessively against something? Yeah. You know, and, and, and is it is it just because we can't bear the burden can't bear the burden of our actual lives because we're so lonely or because we're bored? Or, or, or just feel really unimportant or forgotten or overwhelmed and stressed out or sad or what is it? Because, you know, a little bit of escapism, um, everyone needs that. We can't, we can't bear the burden of our, like, actually living our lives all the time. Um, but this constant chasing after something to get myself sort of riled up one way or another... Um, I don't know. It's fascinating. There's a, the cool, it is, it's interesting. I forget who said it, but it said we, um, we feed off the ideas we disagree with. Like we, um, we, yes. we, are, we are parasitic, uh, uh, especially, and the internet allows a person to be to, uh, parasitic, meaning you're, 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 you're siphoning off um, emotional energy, which is really meaning and purpose. You know, the, the idea that I matter and that my, feel my opinions matter when I'm afraid that they don't. Um, and w- so we seek out, it, it's, it's the, the internet's this amazing laboratory, which we, for something we've always done, I think, but it's to find the people we disagree with or the ideas we disagree with in their most radical form. And one of the things he says, is, w- w- this is why it's so interesting, is because it's low stakes, because it, we, if we can do this with Wordle, then we can literally do it with anything. And it, it's, it's all of the other stuff tends to, it, it's hard not to then therefore see a lot of the emotional energy that's expended. You can detach a little bit from the emotions of it, which I think is a, is a good thing. It's also, um, it's also a cynicism inducing uh, thing, but because um, I find that the Wordle for me, if it was more binge-worthy, you're right, it would become a tool for distraction, which is not necessarily a uh, um, a tool of self-justification so much as a tool of uh, sort of, uh, you know, um, palli- or sort of pacifying <laughs> my mm. inner uh, Palliative is a good fears word. Yeah. about uh, not measuring up. I I find it refreshing. I find anything refreshing that's not Twitter. First of all, like mm-hmm. I just I I it's 
I I don't go on Twitter often at all. I go on like literally once a month because somebody will say, oh, this thing is happening on Twitter. And I'll go and look at Twitter and I'll gasp like an elderly woman, clutch the pearls that aren't around my neck and shut off the app. Like within about five minutes. I'm like, I cannot believe people are talking to each other with this level of, or like trolling each other, like with this level of specificity, right? That... And for, and for me, I, th- I have to say like the most painful part of it is because I'm connected to people within my denomination. It's within our denomination. It's like denominational infighting about things Yes, yeah. that just, it's, Stuff I just, nobody cares about so disturbing all. to me. Um, and you know, it's like anything else. Like if we, and I think that's like the beautiful thing about Wordle is like, if we were in person having the kind of discourses we have on Twitter, first of all, I just think God would strike us down immediately with lightning. Would die. But, you know, we would never actually say that, especially as Christian brothers and sisters, God, please, I would hope we would never actually say these things to each other in person. But Wordle is like heads up, seven up for the internet. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a game you would have played in like fifth grade with your friends. Like you would, totally, there's something really beautiful and light about that. I completely forgot about heads up, seven up. It's I just want to say I mean, you can play it right now, but it's a little <laughs> awkward for people to listen what to. What is it? I don't know what that is. Just, it's a game you used to play in your classroom. And anyway, look it up. Look it up. Yeah, it's look so up well. heads it's up, seven well. up. It's fun. It's, but it's yeah, very, I mean, like, I didn't play games as a children. Um, yeah i mean i i don't know well i think that what you're also um uh, you're alluding to at least what i'm hearing a little bit is that these positions people take online with the second you take one and you've only got 140 or 280 characters to do it you, you become you reduce down to that one position and um what he tries to say is that in the reality i can really enjoy wordle and you know do 10 tweets about how fun it is and then i just go on with my day and i feel strongly about other things too and it's not all my personality isn't defined by this one thing and that flattening that reduction um it it creates um basically the opposite of harmony in the world Um, and it's just boring it's boring it's predictable too (laughs) It's not fun. I don't know. I mean, like, you know. Well, we saw a, le- a slightly less benign version of this. Anne Helen Peterson, who's speaking at our New York conference, wrote a, uh, a newsletter called Why No One Can Hear Parents Screaming. Why No One Can Hear Parents Screaming. The New York Times did an article this week about mothers who are gathering on fields simply to scream at this point. It's mostly, it's blue state moms. Let's just put it out there, uh, who are absolutely um you know at their wits end uh every- oh my god everything i want to say right now i can't say <laughs> oh come on i'm come just on. like the, you it. know they're just Do like it. this isn't what motherhood was supposed to be things are supposed to be 50 50 you know like they're, they're not they're not happy and I, I i i i'm i'm living in that world right now so i i understand i mean i get it i you know but anyway okay keep going she says every corner i turn on the internet I see another version, a parent plaintively and persuasively writing about this suffocating moment. Uh, The agony of parents of children under five. There's no more sympathy for working parents with quarantine kids. And then last week, when kids under five get COVID, parents are screwed. Um, 
this is true. She, but she, she uses this as a jumping off point to think about empathy. She says, I think back to my own, and it relates to the Wordle thing, my own experience in the years after college, I knew a few parents of young children because I was caring for those children as a nanny, but all of my friends were my age. At that point, anyone just a few years older or younger felt in some way unrelatable. My circle was large in the way those first years after high school or college often are, but it was also so experientially small. And I do think my capacity for empathy suffered tremendously. Life's inertia and various gravitational pulls and necessities can make it easy to continue down that path. You hang out with people who have made similar decisions as you, whether in terms of parenting or education or lifestyle or where you can afford or want to live. Again, this makes sense. We gravitate towards those who affirm our own decisions simply by mirroring them back to us, which is a justification situation. Uh... But spending time with people who are older and younger than you, who have made different life decisions than you, who work in different industries and have different education levels and different experiences, that makes you think broader and better. This is, by the way, part of what Alan Jacobs' wonderful book, How to Think, is about. It makes other struggles vivid and on some level knowable, even if they aren't your own. They can solidify the abstract. But she sort of notes that this is odd, though, because parents make up a majority of our society. It should be incredibly easy to cultivate empathy for them. But we have effectively siloed ourselves, even the parents among us, in a way that makes the rockets of exasperations bounce off the walls going nowhere. They make a huge racket that only those in the silo can hear. The impulse to huddle in the silo is born of terror and exhaustion, but... Could it be that we're also failing to cultivate the sort of connections that can actually ease that terror and exhaustion? I'm less interested in talking about the specifics of COVID as parents or parenting during time of COVID so much as the way that we silo ourselves off into these little communities that... um, in which you can sort of feed your self-righteousness or your uh, your antagonisms, rage. your rage, and the way that we start to then perform for exclusively that that audience. It's um, it's uh, and and so it, making it therefore we're making giving you more to be upset about, uh, and rather than what what she would say is that this 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 double bind where the very things that would allow you the empathy to understand and hear other people are the very things that are being closed off by the degree of, I don't know, um, uh, aggression with which you're expressing your feelings. Um, RJ, you were about to say something? Well, what I wanted to say, maybe I'm naive and maybe it's just my church, but I feel like this is just an advertisement for church. Yeah. You know, it's an advertisement. It's bi-weekly you know, advertisement for church. Yeah, um, because uh, I, I'm sure there are I'm sure there are some churches, although I I bet there are less than we think there are, where everyone sort of thinks the same way and has the same politics and the same understanding. And but I'll bet that's actually not necessarily the case, you know. And and it's oh, and I remember being in college and going to church and thinking, God, it's so amazing when I'm spending seven and a half days or six and a half days a week with people that look exactly like me and are exactly my age, exactly my stage of life. And suddenly I'm in this, and I didn't go to church that often in college, but when I did, it's like, there's babies here, there's grandparents here, there's um, middle, you know, there's just this whole wealth of human existence that I don't get to access um, the rest of the time that I'm here in college. And I, I loved that. Um, I think also as I was getting more comfortable with like church attendance, I think I've said this before on the podcast, 
my wife and I used to complain about how like impossible Christians were and Christians were the worst and we didn't really like church people. And then at some point I realized it's like, no, 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 that's, that's just everybody. It's just these are the people we know well because we spend time with them and they have the freedom to sort of be themselves and be a little more more honest. And I will say, I don't feel that way about church people anymore. I really love... Um, I love uh, church people, and I and I you know, and you see your people in your church on Facebook, and and you recognize that people have wildly divergent views about all sorts of things. Um, but we still come together every week, and and we we worship, and we talk about things that matter. Um, and it reminds me, I had this one this one on one meeting once with um, Fitz Allison, uh, the former bishop of South Carolina, about ten years ago, where he said a bunch of stuff that I'll never forget. But he told, and I was sort of um, talking about the difficulty of parish ministry, and he was very gentle and wonderful with me. But he said, you know, RJ, I knew this man once, and um, he was the most insufferable SOB that I'd ever met. Um, and then he went into parish ministry, and 10 years later, he was really the most lovely person ever, <laughs> you know, and about how parish ministry uh, and, and being in in Christian community in that way has a way of kind of sanding down your rough edges and revealing your self-righteousness and humbling you and raising you up and making you a person. But um, anyway, there there is something really beautiful about it that's lacking in our, in our, you know, where else, we've talked about this before, where else can you go but church to be, to, to spend intentional time with a bunch of people that you uh, probably disagree with on on most things? You know, um, and not just fight all the time. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, I mean, there's like, I feel like there's constantly like conversations that happen on the college campus I'm on that are like bringing these divergent groups to like hash it out. I don't know. And like, it's like, I, is that, do we need more divisiveness? I don't, you yeah. know, and just not How's really, going? what's the value there? So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I sorry. I'm. I want to apologize to moms because I. I don't mean to downplay this sort of. I don't know this. Oh, the um, impossibility of this moment. Yeah, I don't know, RJ. I struggle with that. Like, I just feel like people raise children during the Great Depression. I don't know. I mean, honestly, like, yes, this is hard. I get that, and I know we're not supposed to do comparative suffering, but like, I just, I wouldn't be here if my grandmother's grandmother hadn't taken her in after her mother died in childbirth and then a, a cousin nursed her as an infant like yeah hmm. we gonna be okay all right like we gonna be Twitter, okay she probably would have complained about it i mean <laughs> <You> <laughs> probably and but so that's the thing is like how necessary is that and then when we do get in these loops of like affirming our rage um it's really scary I don't know. I find it to be real. And I like, there's a lot of different loops I can kind of interact with, right. On a weekly basis as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, as a clergy person, as a working mom, like there's a lot of those loops I can, and I do, I can step in and out of that rage, but it's, um, it does become really self-affirming and you forget that there are other people around you with different struggles. 
Yeah, I, it's yes. funny because you know, Sarah, you and I both work with college students. Yeah, and um, you know, we have this all have this natural proclivity to surround ourselves with people that make us feel comfortable and don't make us. Uh, I get. I, I want to understand. Life is hard enough. You don't want to be around people that are quote unquote challenging you all the time, or even just by their personhood. You know, it's like you just want to sort of relax a little bit. And there, there is the impulse to simply choose comfort food uh, socially because you're so uncomfortable. You know, or life is so uncomfortable. But I always, I also think to myself about students who are, you know, essentially living in a town full of their peers, you know, and only their peers. And yes, there's a diversity of backgrounds and stuff like that, but it, it, it's, it's, it's chronologically or chronally, whatever you call it, temporally, um, completely, uh, homogenous and, uh, everyone's the exact same age. And that to me, I find that that actually increases the comparison, the feelings of bad, uh. of feeling terrible about yourself, the sense in which these these choices that I'm making right now are, will define the rest of my life, all this stuff that seems so enormous. Um, so I, I don't know all the, well what to say is that I think that there is an impoverishment by being around people who are just like you, yet it's also comfortable because life is so so tough. So I don't know what the answer is, because she says, she's like, you, this isn't an invitation to tourism, to sort of just say, oh, what is this population like? I'll hang out with them. And for my own self-betterment, like to use other people and other popula- other demographics. We've done that enough to the black folks in our lives. Yeah. I mean, yes. That, yes I think that's what we're trying to say. Don't do it's, that. It's George Costanza, like, <laughs> watching... <laughs> Watching Raisins in the Sun with the, um, or Breakfast at Tiffany's with that black family. Oh, um, that's, do you remember that episode? If you guys seen that? I do remember that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, back to what RJ said though, it's like the thing about church and being around people that are different from you is, is that you actually don't have to pay any attention to the people. You can just go and sit in the pew and like there's the cross and there's the altar and there's an experience of transcendence or I don't know, it's just quiet, which is nice and rare. And at some point, if you want to bump into these people and like, you know, have a cup of coffee with them after the service, you can. And that's really nice, too. But it's not like your political stance or your issue, whatever, is the conversation. It reminds me of something my dad said to me once when we were having a really hard time in our relationship and I was angry about some mistakes I think he'd made and decisions he'd made and we were trying to mend our relationship and I really wanted to talk it out. And he said, um, RJ, at some point maybe we can do that, but could we not do that now? Could we just like learn to enjoy each other's company again and have some fun together? And I thought that was such a cop out. Like I was, you know, I was very self righteous and young, and I was like, I was like, that's ridiculous. How can we possibly move forward? But I think he was right, and I think that's a little bit what church is, right? Like we come bearing our brokenness and our opinions, but we're not, but we're focusing on something else. We're focusing on on sin and forgiveness and mercy and 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 reconciliation and redemption and. 
there's something, you know, it's like if we, if we're moving towards the same thing, um, maybe we can sort of meet each other in the middle a little bit or something without having to work out absolutely everything because that's never going to happen. There's a false idea that um, what is what, what concretizes another person is by being with them and experiencing their strengths and you know the deliciousness of their food and their incredible gifts with storytelling or whatever it is in this population that we might have idealized or um, slightly uh, you know uh, almost mythologized. Uh, but the, what really is what really concretizes another person is finding out that they are just as um, broken as you are, and yes. it's uh, it's that Alan de Botton quote about kindness is built out of a constantly renewed awareness that weakness-free people do not exist. And yeah. so if I can be in this community and that community, yes, I can see what they bring to the table and appreciate that. But what's going to provoke more kindness rather than – because that often – if you really get into another community and you see that they're just fundamentally better at certain things, that might produce resentment you know, that, that, mm. <laughs> or just terrible feelings. But if you can under, get into another community or another group of, of older folks or generations, I think is the big thing right now. Um, we've talked about that before. Millennials, what generation Z and realize, oh, they're actually in pain or they're actually mm. struggling. They're actually have things <laughs> that they're, they're insecure too. Oh my gosh. Yeah then maybe I can't, maybe I might get out of this silo for a second. Because it was, but it's not built on, the world says it's sort of a strength game, but uh, the gospel, I think, says it's a weakness game. Yeah. Intimacy through uh, vulnerability. You know, it's Brene Brown, like, for days. Yeah, so basically, RJ, stop sending me your Wordle scores, because, you know, you just I will you make not me do dislike that. you rather I than I need like to have you. something on you, yeah. Dave Zoll, you sexy beast. <laughs> Um, well, this next All thing right. is fairly interesting. It's from the School of Life. Um, no, no attribution. No one. We don't know who wrote it, but it's called "Why You May Be Experiencing a Mental Midwinter." About every year, nature quietly takes us through a moral lesson that has much to teach us about how we might relate to certain of the more dispiriting and despair-inducing moments in our own development. Beginning in mid-October in the northern hemisphere, the temperature drops, the nights, the nights draw in, the earth turns cold and hard, fog lies low over land, and rain drives hard across the austere, comatose, gray-brown landscape. Whoa. Ooh. There's nothing immediate we can hope for. For now, we have nothing to do but wait with resigned patience until something better shows up. Far more than we can generally accept, our minds too have cycles. We cannot be permanently fruitful or creative, excited or open. There are necessary times of retrenchment when whatever we might desire, there seems to be no alternative but to stop. It can be easy to panic. Why should such a paralyzed and detached mood have descended on our formerly lively minds? Where have all our ideas and hopes gone? What has happened to our previous animation and gladness? At such times as these, we might re take reassurance from the late November landscape. Certainly things are lifeless, cold, and in suspension. But this is not the end of the story. The earth is like this not as a destination, but as a phase. The deadness is a prelude to new life. The fallow period is a guarantor of fecund days to come. All living organisms need to recharge themselves. Old leaves have to give way. Tired limbs must rest. The dance and ferment could not go on. It may look as if nothing at all is happening, as though this is a trance without purpose, yet deep underground at this very moment, nutrients are being gathered, the groundwork for future ebullience and dynamism is being laid down. Another summer is very slowly collecting its strength. There is nothing to fear. 
I sort of read that as a word of grace to people who are feeling sort yes. of spent and um, and also just the the midwinter blues. Um, no, I, I will say that I've lived in a couple, in a few different places um, where it was just nice weather all the time, and it can be really exhausting. You know, it actually, it's such a relief. It's a relief when you get a rainy day. It's like, oh, thank God. Like this this weekend here, it was, I think it was, was it Saturday? Anyway, it was raining. And I was like, praise God. Just like stayed inside, watched football, <laughs> hung out with my family, didn't feel the need to be like outside doing something uh, productive, could just kind of kind of lay low. Um, but this, this idea about, yeah, that we're sort of cyclical, Beings. I've heard people talk about, was it circadian rhythms or, or something like that? Um, and I've noticed recently that that's totally true for me, right? I get to work at about eight and then about 10 or so, I just need to stop doing things and have a, just take a deep breath or a cup of coffee or play Wordle or something and reset myself. And I think at times, and I still do this, I beat myself up for not just being able to push through, you know, and like uh, get that email done, write that letter, you know, figure it out, like get your energy up. And it's just like, if you just allow yourself to like, just have a moment <laughs> of, of unproductiveness, either in, during your day or during your life, um, that is a word of grace. And it, it reminds me of another thing Fitz Allison said in that meeting. He said, because uh, I was working really hard back then, and luckily I don't do that now, but I, did, I used to. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but what did he say? He said, RJ, uh, the, the, low, the good load's going to get his Sabbath one way or another. You know, so you're either going to have to take time off or you're just going to get debilitatingly sick and have to be in bed for two weeks. So you, you, you choose, you know, choose which, which one you're going to, which path you'll take, which I thought was wise. So I found this to be a word of the grace The good Lord's going to well. take his Sabbath one way or another. Yeah. Sarah, yeah. how does this fit you? I mean, clearly you're in a slightly different circumstances, but what do you, how does it hit you? I mean, it makes me thankful that I grew up with agriculture i think honestly that's what it makes me think of is like when you go uh to our family's farmland in mississippi in october like there's this energy around like they've had harvest and which means people have money which is like always exciting in these little bitty southern towns and it means the men go hunting and it me but it also means like the land is like um it, it looks dead, right? It's brown. It's, you know, it's withered. And, um, that's sort of the time when families really gather in together. So mm. for me, there's like, it's, it's like a rest from yourself or something. Like you don't have to um, go it alone. Mm. There's something about that for me that's very powerful. So, I mean, Dave, you were in the Mississippi Delta, like during that season. So, um, you know, we had mom and dad's funeral in January. And so, it's when everything is gone. And it's, um, to me, it's just one of the most beautiful times to be there. Your mom was a, was a photographer. Yeah. Um, Did she have an affinity for crops? Like when they were, when I know she's a sort of agriculture was her, one of her specialties, but did she, was it more fallow ground or fertile ground or was it a mix or how did that work? Well, you get paid for the fertile, honey. (laughs) No one wants the fallow. Um, you know, her big moneymaker, it's so funny, was um, crop uh, uh, chemical companies would pay my mother to do plot work, which is where they fertilize, uh, you know, this specific plant with this specific fertilizer. And then she takes a picture of it. She drives out to the middle of nowhere and takes a picture of it once a week. 
And so they can see the progression of how it works. So, Uh um, so growth was very important, but you know, she was always, and I have, gosh, I have the photographs now, but she was always captivated by the barrenness of land there. Um, and you know, so there's, I have beautiful work from that. So I, I never think of that as a bad thing, Mm. probably in part because of her work, um, which is a gift. I mean, I hear you saying that, and I've got this picture of the Delta now, and you growing up with that, like, I did not grow up. I, I have a I have a mother who is a very avid gardener, and I was aware that certain things, the growing seasons were now and not now, and and there were certain you know uh, you know tropical or seasonal things shifts, but not in any way. Um, maybe maybe sometimes as we've lost that tie to and and farming has become so centralized. You just don't have appreciation for that kind of. For, you, you understand the seasons, but you don't understand the rate, the, how that works with the recharging, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a funny, sweet thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I miss. I mean, I don't know. That's that's a definitely thing I miss about talking to my parents is sort of knowing more about what was going on there. But they would update you. They'd be like, "Well, be oh, like, for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How was the harvest good?" And I mean, those are conversations I grew up with, which were totally normal to me. And I now realize are like not conversations people ever have, you know. And yet, like, Jesus is constantly using agricultural language. And I'm always having to be like, well, let me translate this for you from agricultural language. And not realizing that, like, <laughs> most of the world still understands, doesn't need, you know. They um, know the vine workers that showed up late and got paid, okay? <laughs> they know those guys. It, they don't like sir, those it's guys. Just, <laughs> it's weird hearing you talk about a time when the land is fallow and there's nothing to do, because the thought that immediately popped in my mind was like, well, now it's time for your side hustle. You know, now it's time to, 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 to figure out that, that, that other thing you have to do because God forbid you not be making money. Oh my, that's, and, when uh, I was in Tulsa, there, you know, one of my, my Uber driver was uh, the sweetest lady whose actual, her main job was bounce houses. You know, uh, she had bounce houses that she would rent out for children's birthday parties, but that was, but January, February, there's no bounce house. So she goes up to, she comes up to Tulsa and drives Uber. Everybody has a side hustle now. She has to have a side hustle, by the way. Yeah, she has to have a side hustle. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of my family, it's funny. They live in these really small, I mean, you can't even call where my mom's people live a town. They don't have a post office anymore. They do have a Baptist church, but, um, they they all have houses that are even further out their cabins mm. and that's mm. where they go to this time of year and that's where you hunt and you eat casseroles that have a lot of cream cheese in them and that sounds amazing it's pretty great yeah it's it's on it's on a it's on water it's really yeah well let's go to the last thing this is from our website is from Ben self sorry that was like your delta portion of the uh, thanks for coming guys that's the agrarian it's our agrarian yeah. moment you know on actually, the though, I thought of both of the two of you at this uh, we're doing a series at our church called uh, grace at the movies just to sort of a, a f- everything's oh, nice. been so so heavy that we wanted to kind of break it up and do some fun stuff and this past week this upcoming week we're doing Lars and the Real Girl okay. which if you haven't seen yes. Lars and the Real Girl it's unbe- it's this parable of, of imputation and and Grace Sarah you would love it because there's have you not seen Lars have you not seen that movie Sarah I haven't oh my god it's so good I'll watch I feel like it came out when that. I had a baby but early I'm early Ryan Gosling it came out 2007 I think it's so but good. not only was it is it about the rebirth of a of this sort of resurrection of a human being and grace and all this beautiful thing. There is there is a scene uh, 
where a bunch of, after someone dies, where a bunch of ladies from the church come over with casseroles and they just tell Lars to eat the food. And he's like, well, what are you doing? He's like, we're going to sit. This is what we do. We sit. Mm. And we bring casseroles and we just pastoral care at its finest. And so it's the two of you, because RJ actually gave a talk about Lars and the Real Girl in the early days of Mockingbird. And so I always associate that that with you, RJ. And then Sarah, this, because it's also a very agrarian community, and it looks like the Delta in certain times, um, except for there's more snow. yeah, but it anyway. That's that's everyone's recommendation for this week. Go out and watch Lars and the Real Girl. It also has one of the most beautiful portrayals of church uh, that'll catch you off guard. Yes, it, it it's like did I just really watch it? It's like how people respond to the prayer at the end of Don't Look Up. You know, uh, Kara Slade read that in Tulsa. Don't look up the movie that's on Netflix, uh, and uh, it just stops everyone in their tracks. Like that's how Lars and the Real Girl was for me. I didn't see it coming. Yes. But this is another another type of stories. Ben Self, wonderful Ben Self, who leads the Mockingbird Book Club. There's a virtual book club you can be a part of. Oh, me neither. I had no. How long's that been going? There's like a hundred people signed up for it. It's a they're reading uh, Piranesi by Susanna Clark right now. Anyway, uh, Ben is the one who does that. He's a high school English teacher, and he wrote this wonderful uh, reflection on fairy tales. It's sort of based on a. He's. uh, Let me read it to you. It's called Happy Endings for the Undeserving. The stories we tell tend on some level to be moral fables, rewarding those who are good and or punishing those who are bad. And such cosmic meritocracy is especially pronounced in children's stories, not least the many exuberant fairy tales set to animation over the past 85 years by Disney. We probably just assume that's how children's stories are supposed to work. What may be surprising, however, is that children's stories haven't always been so predictably moralistic. In fact, there was a time in European folk history when, quote, fairy tales did not actually reinforce a karmic vision of the universe, but instead projected a jarring kind of moral anarchy. He then refers to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, uh, Revisionist History, who did this whole look into The Little Mermaid and how Disney changed The Little Mermaid from the actual folktale. But you don't need to know about that. but I want to. It's a fascinating episode. It's, I think, three parts. But um, he, Gladwell talks to this uh, researcher, a neuroscientist named Angus Fletcher, who's a neuroscientist turned English professor. And Fletcher points out that there are actually two categories of fairy tales, the original kind and the modern kind. Among the earliest recorded fairy tales are those of 16th century writer Giovanni Straparola who, more than two centuries before the Brothers Grimm, published a collection of 75 folk stories called The Facetious Knights. He writes this, In in Strataparola's fairy tales, good luck happens to people who are fools. And by fool, I mean actual fools. I mean somebody who's so dense in the story that he says terrible, rude things to everybody he meets, is an inept fisher uh, person, has no apparent positive qualities whatsoever, and ends up a prince. What's more, such, such strokes of luck don't merely happen to people who are, uh, who are uh, foolish, but actively bad. Um, he he t- talks about the example of Adamantina. Adamantina, a poor country girl who is sent to market one day to buy food for her starving family. Adamantina goes to the market with their last money. And does she buy food? No. She makes a whimsical purchase of a doll that she sees because she happens to like this doll. 
And she takes this doll home with her. And her older sister is so distraught that she has this breakdown. Oh, my goodness. This is the end of the family. You've ruined us. It's all over. But lo and behold, the doll turns out to be a magic doll and spits forth money. All her dreams, Adam and Tina's dreams, more or less come true, yet Fletcher emphasizes Adam and Tina does not deserve them at all. She's not virtuous, she's not smart, she's not nice, and she's not kind. She wins the lottery and does nothing to deserve it. Audiences uh, back then perhaps wanted to believe that life could suddenly go from bad to good. You don't have to meet a certain qualification to be eligible for this good fortune. I think she calls them uh, fairy tale twist stories. They're clearly grace stories, Ben writes. Straparola basically shoots happy endings at people from a t-shirt cannon. But fairy tales took a dramatic turn away from grace in the 17th century, after sort of the Enlightenment. All of a sudden, they became poetic justice stories. This is thanks in large part to the French writer Charles Perrault, who made it so that good things only happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, which is essentially the way fairy tales have been told ever since. Okay, fine, but don't we all prefer poetic justice? I mean, I love Disney, Ben writes. Well, it turns out that children don't inevitably prefer the most morally predictable narratives. Because they're bad. (laughs) Fletcher and his team have actually done tests. They need to know they're still loved because they're bad. (laughs) Fletcher says, what a child's brain processes is, well... Bad things are happening to me. Why? They're happening to me clearly because I'm bad. And if bad things happen to bad people and I'm bad, then worse things are going to start to happen because there's no way for me to turn this train around. And what we see is that these stories generate what's called catastrophizing, which is when you become convinced that there's no way to break the cycle of bad feeling. It turns out, Gladwell has found out and Fletcher has proved, kids prefer Adamantina to Cinderella. They know that bad doesn't always come from bad. Good can come from bad. Just relax. Life is not logical. Ben concludes by saying grace is profoundly countercultural, and that's counterintuitive and perhaps always will be. We too can sometimes be orcs or evil stepsisters. Yet as Jesus said, God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And that is good news. So good. I loved it. Adam and Tina. (laughs) Somehow Jamie and I were talking about this with Jack and the Beanstalk recently. She's like, so wait, so this guy, let me get this straight. This guy takes this money. He buys these, he spends his last money on these beans. This stock grows. He climbs it. He breaks into somebody's house. He steals the stuff. He kills him and he lives happily ever after. Like that's Jack and the Beanstalk, (laughs) you know? It's like, I guess, I guess it is. I have, um, we have a great children's book that I cannot recommend enough. It's like 20 years old, but it's back in print called the, it's probably older than that. Gosh, cause I'm 40. So it's old. It's like 35 years old, but anyway, it's called the postman. And it's like these letters from fairy tale figures and there's a postman in the book. And it's literally like you open an envelope and there's, you know, an invitation to, the royal wedding, that kind of like, you know, he visits the three little pigs. There's like a letter from, he visits the the wolf and there's a letter from like the three little pigs lawyer or something. Like it's like all this kind of crazy fun stuff. But there's a letter that Jack writes the giant from Jack and the Beanstalk. And he's on vacation with all the money. And he's like, suck it. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the like end. Annie, my daughter takes such delight, you know what I mean? In that, yeah, it's just 
It's totally brilliant. I mean, it isn't there a little bit of this going on in in Encanto, Sarah? Yes. That there, there's a that some. I haven't watched it yet, but my son has been singing the Bruno song. Oh my gosh, <gasps> mine too. They Bruno, love that song. No, no, no. Yes, it's the yeah, best yeah, song. There's yeah. something about a grandmother who is forgiven, and people are like, "How dare they forgive this grandmother?" Or something like that. How, what, you sent me something about it. Think I about sent it. you. Got, I actually pulled it up because I thought it was so fabulous. Yeah. So the grandmother is this very classic kind of matriarch figure and she's laid down the laws of the family and you know without giving too much away they're particularly hurtful to the protagonist and the family and so anyway i thought this was this is such an interesting take it says some people about the movie Encanto. some people i can't believe they forgave the grandmother she didn't really apologize people from latino families Okay, so here's some language. Holy shit, Abuela shared her trauma and acknowledged she shouldn't have put that on her kids and grandkids. This movie really is about miracles. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, and also so powerful for children to see um, a movie where the matriarch was wrong, you know, and where, and where everyone was like, still loved her and was in right relationship with her. Like, that's a miracle, you know? Um, isn't it funny how the world is so divided and then there are these little like outlets of grace that um, maybe our kids have more access to sometimes I think than we do you know like or or maybe it's that we're so desperate for ourselves that we write it for our children that's just Mm. fascinating yeah it's interesting my my sons have gotten obsessed with some YouTuber named Mr. Beast and um, what from what I can tell all this guy does is go around and give people like extravagant amounts of money and just watch them do like fun stuff with it it's 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 nothing but grace they're like dad we should subscribe they're telling us to subscribe all the time I was like Yes, that's right, son. But then I watch it. It's like, oh my gosh, this is just basically about him being extravagantly generous, uh, and it's it's very cute. Uh, one of the highlights of my week of my life right now is this uh, Thursday morning men's Bible study that just a ton of guys have been coming to, and it's just I they love each other, and I love them, and it's so much fun, and it's just great. Um, but we've been going through the parables, and it's just so great to the questions that they ask and the way they're kind of wrestling with it a little bit. You know, recently we were looking at the parable of the tenants. Oh, no, so the parable of the workers in the vineyard, you know, where, where, where the master goes out and hires people at, you know, 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. and noon and 3 and whatever, and then pays them all the same, you know. Um, and someone said, he's like, well, here's just another story about how Jesus just doesn't really care about any work you do, and in fact seems to prefer everyone who's lazy not doing anything. <laughs> and he, was, he was not happy about it. And I was like... It's like a classic fairy tale. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, that's just, that's right. And it, and it you know, just to wrestle with these crazy stories of... Um, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into heaven before the righteous of the Pharisees. And it's just totally upside down and bizarre. And um, someone else says, like, well, this is this is no way to maintain good order in society. <laughs> I was like, no, it's not. But isn't it what you want? You know? yeah. <laughs> isn't there a little you... bit of you that that sounds yeah. like, don't, don't you want to play Wordle? <laughs> Doesn't it sound kind of Sit around nice? and play Wordle every day. They, uh, yeah. it, it is fascinating that the Enlightenment foisted upon us this, and probably, you know, it's frankly, it could probably be traced back to the Reformation in part. To, I to, know, yeah. that, oh, I thought that too, I was like, Ooh. Yeah, you know, they got pretty austere in some certain... I blame Calvin, it's uh, Calvin. Luther, 
<laughs> He's always the one that takes the hit. But this this well, notion <laughs> that <laughs> this notion that um you know that it, it good doesn't necessarily correlate to how hard you work or how good you are. Uh, and same with bad. I mean, today people would say, yes, it's just a random universe and anything could happen at any time. And, 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 and that we are those are just narr- like good people, good versus evil. Those are just narratives that, you know, naive people tell each other. And a Christian could say they are equally their narratives. People tell each other, but that's because the, the real narrative is much better. I mean, it's, it's much, it, 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 it appears random, cruel, even to our eyes until we're the ones who are the recipients, until we're Adam and Tina in the actual story. And aren't we all, don't we all just want to go to town with all the family's money and buy it all? You know what I mean? And it's totally how life works too. You know, that is how life works. It's like my life was a disaster and I didn't know where I was headed. And then suddenly this person fell in love with me. Or I got, or I got offered this job miraculously, or I, or something happened. You know that that's actually what what happens and what changes our lives. It's not that we, you know, work hard and do everything right and it's all happily ever after. It's it's um, you know God in His grace breaking into our lives in completely unexpected and undeserved ways. And yes, you don't know, we? I mean, this is actually what <clears throat> I'll, I, I, Stephanie Phillips wrote something about that this week, and this incredible. Uh, she wrote an article called "Plans and Resolutions Divinely Interrupted." She said this, she said, I no longer believe God is the almighty jerk who laughs at all my plans, but I am thoroughly acquainted with his willingness to upend them to show me exactly who he actually is. This year, that upending looked like a postponed trip to Disney, a canceled trip to New York, and missed connections with friends and family along the way, as well as extended time at a hotel we'd planned on just stopping through, complete with a glut of time together in a small space as a family of four. God make haste to help us indeed. But these upendings, what look like interruptions to my eyes, are actually invitations, not to a different reality, but to reality, period. As Ethan Richardson wrote in the Mockingbird devotional, this is what the invitation to faith looks like on a daily basis, to accept what's real over what we'd prefer to be real. She oh. says, in my former oh. life of faith, I could convince, in my former life of faith, I could convince myself of a new reality every January 1, a reality of my own making. Then I'd spend the rest of the year trying to arrange everything around me to fit that reality. Let me tell you, it was exhausting. Now when my plans are interrupted, I know that God's not laughing at me. He's holding me closer, drawing me deeper. Because of this pattern of activity, I've come to trust that his holding precedes some kind of new dawn, and that the thing waiting for that dawn to arrive will probably kind of suck. It might even involve the worst thing that could happen happening. Uh, it's a beautiful ad- admission that the, the, the life of faith is a life of in, in right now. Uh, I remember hearing again this week about how um, anxiety is all about sort of being obsessed with the future and depression is all about being obsessed with the past. And uh, the life of, of grace is not about contingencies. It's about present tense, what you've been given here and now. Um, and that's much easier said than done, but it's also... Um, I think kind of what uh, we're not drawn into a different reality. We're drawn into reality period. Right. Um, I don't know. I thought, I thought Stephanie's words sort of anchored a lot of what we've been saying. 
about the God who interrupts. And who's not going to show up in your uh, need to be obsessively angry about something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who's who's going to show up. I mean, he, he will. He will, because he right. does, you know, and he shows up where he shows up. We well, certainly going to interrupt times, what and, you think you deserve and what other people that, that deserving talk. Yes, um, but he does. He 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 does seem to show up in yeah in your everyday life, like you said, not necessarily in your your um, fixation or about the past or your anxiety about the future, but in right now. Um, I'm I keep thinking about. Um, I mean, I love what Stephanie wrote. Uh, mm. She's so gifted um, at at. I don't know her observations, especially around parenting, are so helpful for me, but. Um, also, I'm feeling guilty about saying anything bad about people complaining about motherhood when she talks about a hotel room with her family for an extended period of time with four people in it because that's like the worst. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about the movie The Night at the Museum yes. a lot because um, we have watched uh, Night at the Museum 1 and Night at the Museum 2 this week. <laughs> and um, how... And they're fabulous. I mean, fabulous. Marshall loves if, those movies. If, if nothing else, the the first one where you know Robin Williams is Theodore Roosevelt and he's on the horse and he's having a conversation with Ben Stiller, and there Ben Stiller really needs him in this moment, and he's like, you know, you did all these things and you're the president, and Robin Williams he gets this expression on his face and he just says like, well, I didn't do those things. I'm a wax figure and I was made in upstate New York. And it's such a like, I don't know. It's just one of those moments where you just feel seen as a human being, you know, like, mm. I don't know. It was just so beautiful. Um, but, you know, Ben Stiller is in this kind of um, fairy tale, right? Where the museum comes to, to life at night. And in the second one, we find that he has had this, you know, incredibly lucrative career as an inventor. And then by the end of the movie, he has come back to being the night watchman for the Natural History Museum in New York. And it's and you don't, I don't know. It wasn't what I expected, right? Which I just removed the statue of Teddy Roosevelt, I think. But oh, continue. did they? I think yeah. They did. Um, <laughs> I just I know. But I I just like watched it thinking like this isn't I expected him to, you know, I don't know, be, have a really successful ending. And, and instead he just was like, Oh, there's this place and there are these people that I love, and this is the life that I've been given. And um, that's the fairy tale ending, not the, yeah. the life of love is downwardly mobile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, it's just Ricky Gervais is hilarious in it too. It's like ten out of ten. You got to watch it. But um, yeah, so you've got Lars and the Real Girl, Night at the Museum, and yeah, and one and two. Have you guys seen? Have you seen Free Guy, the Ryan Reynolds yes. movie? There's a there's a moment at the end of that movie that was I got I, I welled up actually. That was pretty profound in the same sort of I thought in the same sort of way. You're I'm not going to give it away, but. Um, whenever um, September by Earth, Wind, and Fire comes on, Marshall goes, "That's Night at the Museum song," <laughs> you know, because that's uh, that's what they play at the end of it. It's so. funny though; those like you know what Stephanie's saying um, about sort of being thrust into the present and these characters that we watch in movies and and even the stuff that we see in these fairy tales, um, where it's like, you know, none of us really have the life that we deserve. 
in so many ways. And it's astonishing the life that we've been given. And it is very easy and very tempting. And I know I've done it. I'm sure y'all have done it. Everybody does it where we get into these vicious cycles of rage and poor pitiful me. And that's fine. And God forgives that too. But, you know, that's not actually where where our heart wants to live. No, it's not fun. It's not Wordle. Girl, get on the Wordle, you know? (laughs) That's the lesson. <laughs> That's the lesson here today. Uh, Double grace. screen. Put on night at the museum. Pull out your phone. Play Wordle. That's your assignment. Oh well, praise God. Um, yeah. you heard it here first. You get all your agriculture and your pop culture. Oh my gosh. Okay. L- and just, Lucky just a you, smidgen of theology. <laughs> just a small, just a, a sous-chant of theology. All right. Well, you two. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Um, God bless. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.